Uh, we'll see if I can get, I, I'm the, a bit infamously the technology journalist who doesn't know how to work any technology on, um, <laughs> on these things, so I had to get the guy, the hotel guy, explain how to make the slides go forward. Um, so here we go. Um, <coughs> and I, I assume most people recognize this, the two center people there from um, uh, Geraldine Kennedy and, and, and Mr. Hawkey. Um, it was fun looking through pictures for, for some of this talk and looking at old historical p images of people and stuff. And, and sort of them, and then the guy on the left, them were the good old days when um, it was harder to tap phones. But um, I want to talk a little bit about the context of surveillance, and then I thought I would talk a little bit about um, what people can do or give you some resources for where you can go. And I think Jared might want to put this, if he wants to put the slide deck up or at least some of the information context contacts so people can go find them later. I'll be um, happy for him to take those. But um, you could be forgiven for believing that surveillance was never really a problem in Ireland until, like not within the last 20 years or so, up until this past January when journalists in this country discovered some of their call records had been accessed by, of all the seemingly unlikely organizations, GSOC, the Garda Ombudsman Organization, and up until then, maybe you thought surveillance was one of those things that happened back in the bad old days of wiretaps and landlines and Charlie Hawhey. But it's actually alarmingly ubiquitous now, and so much so that journalists worldwide, and I would think, um, except perhaps here in Ireland, where there still seems to be such a low level of awareness of this issue, but, jur but journalists increasingly are recognizing that this particular form of snooping is a pervasive problem for journalists, especially those doing investigative reporting. But let's go back to Ireland itself. As the GSOC scandal showed, and I do consider it a scandal that demands better answers than we've had to date, it's sort of been shelved for a bit um, while there's an investigation going on. In Ireland, both journalists and the wider public have had a very poor understanding of the surveillance powers of the state and its agencies, much less the implications of the data that businesses control in our tracked and recorded digital age. And of course, one leads to the other. If journalists don't understand what's going on, then they don't inform their reader and their viewerships. They also don't take appropriate steps to safeguard themselves or those they communicate with for stories the sources, the insiders, the whistleblowers, and members of the public that could be placed at serious risk through our failure to do so. And I think that's in one, on one hand, one of the things that surprised me most about all the stuff around the GSOC um, records is that, is that, there w that journalists might even be worried that some of their contacts might come up in a trawl of call records because there surely should not have been call records going back and forth to people like, you know, insiders like Gardi or um, those sources should be protected regardless of whether you think it's right or wrong that the Gardi are leaking that information. It, uh, for a journalist, you should be protecting those sources. And what I hope to convince you is that this concern that I'm talking about is not paranoia from someone who's been covering technology and security for two decades, and I really got interested in this area as I wrote in a column last week, 
when I first attended a security conference in the 1990s when encryption was going through its first wave of what they call the encryption wars of governments trying to control whether people um, like us should have access to encryption at all or whether it should be just the preserve of governments and state agencies and maybe businesses. Um, that really drew me in and um, got me interested in this area. But I want to argue that this isn't this is a paranoia. It's a sort of a it's an exasperating, insidious new normal that we all have to deal with, and it requires care and vig vigilance if you want to claim to be a responsible reporter. And I also hope you'll be persuaded that if you're in the business of journalism, you must remain aware and you must care, more importantly, about issues of security and privacy and surveillance. And it isn't someone else's beat. It isn't just my beat. It has to be yours as well. So let's go to GSOC. If I can. Ah, here we go. So it's working. As we learned in January, the Garda Ombudsman body had been digging through the phone records of a number of journalists as part of an investigation into Garda leaks to journalists. And we were treated to days and days of media indignation and anguish over how and why this had happened to journalists. Uh, for the few of us that cover privacy issues regularly, and it is a very few, this made us want to scream collectively because it wasn't as if this scenario hadn't been predicted. Because for nearly two decades, the state had been setting a very wide legislative net for gathering and storing call record data, and it was always likely, given the global inclination towards mission creep in this area, towards adding in more stuff that we're going to be gathering this data for, more reasons why we want it, more stuff that we want to get hold of, you could always have guessed that data gathering that was once defended as necessary only for the most important criminal and terrorist invest investigations, and that was Minister Michael McDowell's basis for bringing in data retention. You could have guessed that it would, it would eventually turn into the hunt for the source of leaks about a really sad story about a model's death in recreational drug use. You know, how, how is that now suddenly involving the most serious criminal and terrorist um, investigations. It also wasn't the first time that records have been snooped in a similar context. And just last year, a bunch of journalists called data records were accessed in that case over the Roma children who were taken in to custody to the distress of their families because it was assumed they had been stolen and it turned out that they hadn't been stolen at all. But for some reason, when the Garda um, went looking for records in that case, again, about leaks, internal guard leaks. It seemed to bother uh, journalists and media organi organizations less than when it was GSOC. But to be fair now, it wasn't just the media and, dare I say, union response to the GSOC story that was so exasperating, at least to me. The hypocrisy of politicians was breathtaking. For example, Fianna Fáil, along with other parties and independents, called for an investigation into the situation. And they wanted to look more closely at, you know, how could these laws um, allow for call record access of this sort on the basis that journalists need to be able to protect sources. Yet it was Fianna Fáil ministers and, and their coalition ministers as well who brought in the specific laws allowing for such access. And Fine Gael has defended them and Fine Gael has also brought in some um, complementary laws as well that also interlock with our data retention laws. 
and a broad swathe of the Oireachtas approved them all, despite concerns expressed by a tiny handful of TDs. You might think it's the usual suspects, tends to be people like Sinn Féin and a few independents. Um, and then, of course, civil libertarians, um, privacy uh, advocates, and then me, but hey, you know, my voice wasn't <laughs> particularly persuasive, obviously. But how did we even get to this point where journalists' call records were available to be accessed at all? Well, the access powers are based on, primarily based on these two pieces of legislation, and I'll talk briefly about both of them. The 1993 Act and the history of contempor the contemporary intersection of surveillance and journalism in Ireland that most of us know about really starts with the phone tapping scandal um, that Geraldine Kennedy, um, Bruce Arnold, and um, Vincent Brown, which happened in the 1980s. Some of us here will remember it. Others of us might basically re uh, recall it as a plot point for the Charlie miniseries last year. Um, but Ireland had its own Celtic Watergate, and it was discovered that um, Hawhey had basically mandated and knew about the um, tapping of the phones of landline phones of these three journalists, um, trying to find out who was leaking stories to them. And um, it, of course, that whole scandal eventually resulted in Hawhey's fall in the 1990s. But what did happen was, um, oh, and I love this picture. This is Pat Kenny, of course, you've probably recognized him. Um, and uh, this picture I had to throw in just because oh. it's so hilarious. <laughs> and I don't know what that woman is thinking, but. <laughs> and I love that, he, that um, Dick Springs on a payphone there and quite the young buck there in that 80s skinny tie and the shoulder blades on the woman or, or the shoulder pads on the woman and that very um, dynasty style jacket. But I don't know, does anyone recognize who the woman is? I, I don't know. The Labour Senator for Catherine Monaghan. Oh, is that who it is? Okay. I can't remember her name. Okay. I <laughs> wonder what she's thinking. Anyway, um, that scandal resulted in the 1993 legislation being written to expressly block a single minister from ever having the power to mandate on his or her own the um, accessing of, you know, um, or what then would have been just wiretaps, but. Um, that would have moved, that's also carried forward to, you know, a minister can't access call records either, theoretically, anyway. Um, the second piece of legislation is the 2011 Data Retention Act, and I have to confess that that's largely my own fault. <laughs> and, um, mainly because in 2001 I wrote this story, um, which has perhaps the most classically boring headline of all times. It's just a, such a typical Irish Times, um, you know, who will rush to read this story headline, and yet, um, <laughs> and yeah, I know this was not a big earthquake of a story, although I, I think if I remember it was a page one story, and, a, and it was really because I had to argue how important this was. Um, I did, I wrote this story, I because I had, the, both the Telegraph and the Guardian, and these are the odd bedfellows in the area of privacy. You have the same thing in the US. You tend to end up with either liberal media or conservative media, um, the more liberal politicians and the conservative, more libertarian style or pro-business politicians that are concerned, concerned about this issue for different reasons. The Guardian and the, and the Telegraph had run a front page story about how um, Virgin Mobile 
and a bunch of the other mobile companies in the UK were retaining data for over the mandated um, two-year retention period. That is what the um, the data protection commissioners had said would be okay. It turned out they were holding them for seven years. And I thought, well, that can't possibly be happening in Ireland. But so I'll write a piece about how we're so much better here in Ireland. So mm -hmm. I rang the mobile companies, Aircel and ESAT Digifone, little memory trip there. Um, and found out they were holding data for up to seven years and they were really happy to talk about it. And I said, well, what happens when the police ring you and want to look at the call data? And one of them said, um, oh, we just, you know, we just go and put the data back together for them. I said, well, do you, because they're required to separate, you know, to what they say, atomize the data. So you can't collect, you can't connect the person back to their personal data. And if you hand it over to the guards, you're supposed to hand it over where it's still disconnected. And then they're supposed to do all of that reconnecting outside of the um, the actual mobile company. Instead, it was the mobile company quite happily um, pushing this together and, uh, and reconnecting it, which was legal. So I wrote this piece, and this resulted in a years-long battle between the data protection commissioners of the time and the government to create proper legislation um, around an area that was unlegislated for. And it was really important to get legislation because at that time there was nothing, um, no no restrictions whatsoever on what the Guardie did in getting access to mobile data. They could basically just call up the companies. And I know from talking to people that were very senior within the ISP industry, for example, that they knew that people, the Guardie would call up and either talk to somebody that they knew that it was working on um, say a help desk or they would call up and say you know to some really low-ranking guy who's on the helpline I'll oh, come on what would you ha have a little look at those records and and get a sense of then what they would um, ask for formally but they were getting information about these records in these completely in completely illegal ways and um, eventually there was data retention legislation brought in through a last minute amendment to another piece of legislation, disgracefully. It was supposed to be a fuller octus discussion, was promised by Minister McDowell. Um, it was snuck in. There's a whole story behind that, but maybe that's another talk for another time. Um, the legislation then has had various updates. Uh, the current legislation is came in in 2011. The, the first piece was, I think, 2005. Um, and it's based on the EU's own data retention directive, which is um, which basically is a dead piece of legislation because Ireland challenged it to the European Court of Justice in 2014. The, the European Court of Justice threw it out. So our legislation is now based on something that is could, has been declared unlawful, which raises even more questions about what's going on with the GSOC inquiry, but all of that's sort of waiting to be um, decided out there. And our government still hasn't brought in legislation, even for two years after the ECJ saying, we don't, you can't use this stuff. We, so we're kind of in this gray area at the moment. And what does this legislation allow for? Um, mandatory collection of call, um, all call data, some email and internet metadata, and metadata is the, the information about the calls or about emails. Um, it tends to be referred to by authorities as just quote-unquote metadata, but as the ECJ noted, it's extremely sensitive data and very highly revealing, and it's enough to enable detailed profiling, but also it's piecemeal enough, importantly, to an, uh, easily allow false assumptions to be made that can affect people's lives in um, some pretty dire ways. So metadata is not trivial, as we've seen from the GSOC case as well.
And um, there's also some companion legislation brought in by a statutory instrument in 2014, which is fairly alarming, which allows, and a lot of people don't realize this, it allows for a secret court within Ireland to decide every time a foreign government puts in a request for um, access to our metadata records, um, the secret court, so this could be like GCHQ in the UK, um, it decides whether the data should be handed over and if a company that's been asked to hand over the data wants to appeal that request, it's, there in the, it's decided in the secret court and exactly like the FISA courts in the US that we've been so critical about, um, companies are forbidden to reveal that they've ever appeared before the court, that they've ever made that they've ever made a request, that they've ever opposed handing over the information. None of this they're allowed to reveal. So again, we're this is way outside even what the what the ECJ said is allowable, and um, it's still in place as far as we know. So basically, we can sit here and feel quite superior to the NSA and the GCHQ in the US and the UK that have to do with those agencies. But Ireland's actually pioneered data retention legislation in the EU, and we historically have had amongst the worst, the, um, the world's longest mandated retention periods, and Irish legislation was clearly in part the basis for the EU's own data retention directive. And now under the 2011 Act, ostensibly, access requests can be made only by the Garda Revenue or Defense Forces, and I actually believe this to be the case, foolish me too, until the GSOC case arose, and it highlighted that there are a range of sort of trickle-down effects of other legislation which allow other organizations for various reasons to access metadata. But um, so here's a, this is thanks to Jared, had, had this nicely up on a blog post a while back, um, a nice list of all these other acts actually connect into our data retention legislation and enable other organizations to access call record data. Now remember, this is stuff that's only supposed to be accessed for the most serious of investigations. And um, so these are all the people who can also have a look at that data in certain circumstances. So all of this now, our, our legislation sits within a wider international re uh, regime of surveillance with significant implications and chilling effects for journalists. And I love this Banksy mural. This, is, um, this appeared after the, some of the Snowden documents were first published. This suddenly appeared very in Cheltenham, really close to uh, the GCHQ's headquarters. <laughs> and. Uh, we know, you know, 2013 Snowden, the former NSA contractor, Edward Snowden, began these extraordinary document releases which have really given us the most information we've ever had on what is actually happening at these large surveillance agencies and what they're capable of. And they have these really sweeping eaves eavesdropping possibilities that maybe 20 years ago, those of us who were interested in this area and were trying to find out more about, you know, there were always rumors of, GC, of GCHQ, you couldn't even talk about 30 years ago. In the UK, you could be thrown in jail for, um, for implying that GCHQ existed. It turned out, eventually we found out it did exist and that it did have this huge surveillance program and a lot of the details were revealed by Snowden. Um, in the U U.S., we know that there's been these bulk surveillance programs from um, 
that the NSA runs where they take in metadata from all phone calls to, from, and within the U.S. They routinely collect um, the content of international chats, emails, and voice calls. Daily, they collect millions of images to run facial recognition programs on them. Um, and they've, um, they also deliberately work to weaken global encryption standards. Um, while over in the UK, GCHQ, as far as we know, continues to surveil all of the content. And this is far more shocking than what the NSA does. GCHQ looks at all the content, content passing over all the fiber optic cables going in and out of the UK, including the major ones over to Ireland, which means all of our information, unless you've encrypted it, is visible to GCHQ. And they were storing all content for three days on a rolling basis as well, as a, as a, um, because storage has become so cheap and networks have become so fast that all of this now is a fairly trivial issue for them to do cost-wise and technology-wise. And the Irish government um, has never condemned this mass invasion of citizen privacy. And the best I've been able to do is to get a comment from Minister Dara Murphy, noting that it would be preferable if all countries used established treaties to access data under lawful requests. Um, you, we, all, we can come up with many hypotheses as to why the Irish government doesn't really want to criticize what the UK is doing, maybe because they get access to some of that information as well. Um, but we don't really know. And, but Edward Snowden said that the NSA envies GCHQ its largely unfettered surveillance capabilities, just to give a bit of context. And we tend to focus almost exclusively on the NSA and not what's happening with our nearest neighbor. So how does this affect journalists? Well, and, and sorry for my screen grab, there seemed to go off when I pasted it up as a slide, but I, you could see what it says. I think, um, thanks to Snowden, we know emails from the BBC, Reuters, The Guardian, The New York Times, Le Mans, The Sun, NBC, and The Washington Post from leading journalists were saved by GCHQ and shared on the agency's intranet as part of a test exercise. And they, um, GCHQ noted that they counted investigative journalists as threats alongside criminal hackers and terrorists. And those emails I mean, this is what's really breathtaking. They were part of, those emails, the journalist ones, were part of 70,000 emails that they harvested in under 10 minutes by those taps on those fiber optic cables that are part of the internet backbone. So that was just a little brief slurping exercise to see what they might be able to pick up and then mine through. So what do journalists think? Well, of course, we're frustrated, angry, resigned, but also fighting back and I hope learning more about what's actually going on. And there was a survey taken of members of the US-based um, organization, IRE. At first I thought it was standing for like Irish reporters and I realized it meant investigative reporters and editors um, for a report that was published early last year. And in that, two thirds of investigative journalists surveyed believe the US government has probably collected data about their phone calls, emails, or online communications. 38% of the reporters um, said in the past year that they had modified the way in which they communicate with sources. 18% said they turn off electronic devices when, meet, um, when meeting sources in person. That's because, of course, your mobile phone is a tracking device and it places you. It's There's software that can um, 
do these matches between where your number is and somebody maybe of interest or does that same person appear numerous times so that's quite you know you're, you're basically when you leave your phone on you go to meet somebody you're telling them where you are um, 59 percent of reporters meet their sources in person now instead of communicating by phone or email um, and a 2014 report by the group Human Rights Watch, which surveyed US journalists and lawyers, concluded that a post-Snowden world of surveillance poses serious threats for journalists and ultimately society and democracy. And it noted how journalists now feel that they have to take these elaborate steps to protect their sources and information to eliminate any digital trail of their investigations. So they're using high-end encryption, they're resorting to burner phones, and I know you've noted in some piece you've written that you know journalists who use the you know, burner phones that you could use and then you get rid of them. Um, to and some of them have abandoned all online communication and try exclusively to meet sources in person. And um, they noted as well that government sources in the U.S. have grown really cautious about even discussing unclassified information or offering opinions, the kind of stuff that we need to form stories. Um, and journalists worried that instead of being treated as essential checks on government in partners in ensuring a healthy democratic debate, and this is from the report, um, and that is actually their recognized role within the U.S. Constitution. They now feel they may be viewed as suspect for doing their jobs. And one prominent journalist noted that he didn't, you know, he, he was felt he was being forced to act as a spy. And he was saying, I'm not a spy, I'm a journalist. I just want to do my job. <coughs> and people might feel that these issues are primarily a U.S., U.K., or Irish concern, and that countries like, say, Germany and the EU um, are a better role model because Germany's been really vocal on privacy rights and has the most aggressive data uh, protection authorities um, in uh, in Europe, probably in the U in all of the world, really. But um, and they were very critical, of course, of the NSA following all the Snowden revelations. But last year, two journalists from Germany's online site Netzpolitik were charged with treason, treason, by the country's federal attorney general. And this was because they published stories about Germany's own secret agency and their surveillance programs. And the head of the German Secret Service said journalists, in, as a result, following on from that, um, said that journalists should face criminal prosecutions um, because exposing secret surveillance programs and documents um, was, it, he considered it to be treason because those things were needed, and this is a quote, to continue the fight against extremism and terrorism, and this is of course the multi-purpose um, excuse that gets used all the time. And actually that trial then fortunately was put on hold and, um, and Angela Merkel apparently supported it being put on hold and thought that was going a bit too far. And internationally, of course, this is uh, surveillance of journalists is a huge issue, and it's probably worse because we know there are cases where, and this is a whole other talk as well, where international journalists have been had their computers hacked um, and put, been put under surveillance by various technologies, sold to repressive governments by companies, technology companies, 
in the Western in Western democracies, uh, most notably a company called the Hacking Team in Italy, which some any of you who follow those issues or follow the tech industry might know that they got hacked themselves. Um, sort of a retaliatory hack, probably by um, by activists tired of the fact that they were um, selling technology that was found on um, found on devices belonging to Moroccan journalists in 2012 and Ethiopian journalists in 2014, for example. So this is the new landscape, and I just want to br briefly note some things journalists can do. Um, my, there we go. Um, first, some tactics, and um, there's loads of on the internet that, that that you can read about all of, about all this kind of stuff. And I'm going to give I give a couple of links in the next slide, which you can put up online um, if you want. But and it's important to get your information from a good online source because there's lots of sites that will give you information that really is not very good. Um, but some of the basic tips here. You should be using strong passwords. You should use a variety of passwords. You should save them offline, not in a text file on your computer desktop like lots of people use or on your iPhone or whatever, on your Android phone. Um, you should change your passwords regularly. Um, it's uh, your passwords, of course, should be have, have some a mix of uppercase, lowercase, um, punctuation, characters, numbers, that sort of thing. An easy way to do them is think of a, the, a line of a song you really like and take all the first letters and um, of that song and maybe throw a number in or something. Or if there's the word F-O-R, you can change it to the number four. Or sometimes, sometimes you can work a number in in a way that you can remember. Um, use encryption. You can use encrypted messaging. I mean, at this point, nobody should be sending text messages to sources over your, you know, over your phone, over the um, Vodafone or whatever. You should be using encrypted messaging. Like Threema is good. Text Secure is good. There's, there's different ones. Some of them are free. Some of them are very cheap, and you can get them. Open source ones are what you want because that code is openly available and is checked regularly by people who care about these issues. Um, Tor is a, is a um, gateway that um, for anybody doing work that's investigative or dealing with sources that are highly sensitive, I'd be using Tor. It's just, it basically sends messages through a labyrinthing system of, of servers that are hard to trace so that it makes it very hard to find, you know, to, to track messages, to track you. Um, and uh, there's information on some of the sites I sh uh, that I'll link to, uh, or I'll show you the links for that explain how to use it. Consider using a virtual private network um, to keep your location hidden. Um, it, as much as you can, meet sources. Don't ring them or email them. And if any of you are old enough to have dealt with um, uh, politicians from that era of Hahi, an awful lot of those people that I would talk to used to always say, you know, they'd ring you and sort of say, hi, let's let's go meet somewhere, you know, they, or they'd call on a pay phone from somewhere, you know. So there's there was a whole generation of people that were just <laughs> accepted you were probably going to be listened to. Uh, maybe we need, I think we need to go, oops, sorry. Oh. How did I, um, why did this go off to, sorry, I lost my, oh, this is, there we go. No, now it's decided to, sorry about this, I'll see if I can, no. I don't want to go click to edit, sorry about this. Um, 
No, I'm, I'll, I'll switch to there anyway and just conclude on that point because there's some other points there but um, um, things that you can do but um, these are three good sites for getting information um, security in a box comes from frontline defenders which is an Irish organization that gives sup digital support to human rights defenders um, that's they um, use uh, the security inbox is developed by tactical tech which constantly updates that and it has a really easy to understand guide on how to use a lot of these technologies and the electronic frontier foundation surveillance self-defense for journalists is really good that they've got a little packet there of stuff for journalists on the move um, so if you find yourself out traveling and um, needing to keep information safe that's useful but but they go through all the steps for everything basically the EFF's a really good resource and then that website Frank Bashak just has a bunch of stuff too and explains a lot of the different technologies and um, I hope that I'm sorry that ran a little bit long but I'm happy to take any questions on that and hope that was helpful thank you, thank you. <laughs> actually even when they're turned off they can be listened to yeah they can, they can can they possibly even record yeah they can possibly record and the camera can be they know that the nsa and gchq know how to turn on the camera remotely and the in the mics remotely and of course we're entering this age of the internet of things of televisions that can listen to you in a room etc cetera, etc cetera. so it's 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 just sort of never ending again you start to feel like maybe you're really really paranoid but I think phones people do need to have really good phone hygiene and realize just putting it you can't just put it on airline you know um, the airline setting either because it's still trackable in in that case what you can do that was one of the things on the end of the list there that I zipped through and lost my slides you can buy something called a Faraday bag which shields um, shields a phone from all electronic signals. So it would blocks Wi-Fi, blocks um, Bluetooth, blocks everything. And a lot of a lot of people, a lot of journalists would routinely, you know, that are investigative journalists, for example, a lot of people that work around the area of security would just always put their phone into, you know, turn it off or stick it in a Faraday bag and just block it. Um, I like turning my phone off so that they don't get tracked in supermarkets. I could buy news on you on that one. There was an article last week in the New York Times or the week before on slightly different context. It's basically how they target people for drone strikes. And one of the things <laughs> that the NSA does is it just monitors all the phones in the Middle East and it looks for, um, the article is actually about problems with their algorithm. But one of the things the algorithm looks for is if a phone gets switched off every now and then, who switches off their phone? Yeah. When was yeah. the last time you switched off your phone? Nobody does it. So the algorithm assumes if there's someone who's regularly switching off their phone, they're meeting someone dodgy. They're a target. <laughs> so don't switch off your phone when you're meeting a contact. Leave your phone in the office. Yeah, well, there switched is that. Switched on. Yeah. Well, there is that as well. Although I don't think you probably won't be a drone target just for meeting your sources. But, <laughs> but there I is this. I said earlier before we started, that depends on whether President Trump becomes yeah. a drone <laughs> <laughs> Oh, please don't, don't put those two don't words together. Giving ourselves a false sense of security. I mean, I always just imagine that whatever's happening encryption-wise that's accessible 
like, somebody is 10 years ahead of that. I mean, how, how secure um, should we feel if we are using points? If, well, the, well, some of the reports that I, that I mentioned were actually really depressing when you dig down into the ones that are from the people that are the real activists who know what they're doing. Like, there's a, there's a um, Citizen Lab and some of these organizations that really focus on, on um, digital security and protection for activists and journalists and um, are involved like, with, you know, The Intercept, the online magazine that does um, set up by um, some of the, the journalist who was involved with the Snowden leaks, for example. A lot of them would argue that, I mean, for, for the average journalist, you're probably not going to be able to do NSA and GCHQ safe levels of, um, of hygiene if you're covering something that they really want to get the information on, just because doing this stuff is hard beyond a certain level. But the flip side of that is that most of us aren't doing that kind of work. And if we take simple steps, it actually, like most, most people who want to get hold of, of information want to do, if it's, you know, want to do it in an easy way, like the Guardi aren't, they're, they're not going to be tracking everybody here, but they want, might want to access call record data. Well, you can prevent there being a, a, a stockpile of call record data just by being really careful about how you use phones, you know, or use, use landlines in the office, for example, not for the whole conversation, but I mean, if you're phoning around, even then I wouldn't do it with, with, um, with good, so, you know, with important sources. And whistleblowers, you know, people whose lives can be ruined by the fact that, um, that certain people get hold of the information that we were talking to each other. But then, you know, there's other areas where I think, okay, people know that I, you know, I'm, I'm sure the, the guards and the government are aware that I cover privacy issues. So if I'm meeting with, with lawyers who cover this area, th th they're going to know that I, you know, that that's not particularly shocking to them. And so, so I guess, you know, you, you, I'd recommend understanding how to do these things. But I would also say you don't have to, um, you don't have to worry about having, unless you're covering things that are unbelievably sensitive internationally, I don't think you need to worry about the NSA trying to get your information. But you, but you can block a lot of the information being out there for um, data trolls, simple for, data trolls. For what it's worth, the journalists I know who actually have burner phones and swap them around regularly are all security cars. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're basically the crime journals. And that's uh, and those their, their, people, their yeah. sources would be within Angar the Shiakana a lot of the time. So they're, they're the people who've been told how to be paranoid, that tells you something. <laughs> yeah, but we should really all, you know, as I said, we should all be doing this. There's, most of us at some point will be doing some stories that may become, and also sometimes we don't realize the story that actually results from what may seem a pretty innocuous contact initially, you know, and. Um, and, and phones do enable you to be so easily matched up with certain people at certain times and um, setting aside the call data completely, just the location data is so sensitive. Yep. Carmen, thanks for a uh, really interesting uh, insight, oh, uh, which is uh, pretty much uh, crime and security related from a state point of view. <coughs> you mentioned at the beginning uh, corporate interests. Um, how concerned should we be about uh, private uh, intrusion and monitoring that sort of thing, perhaps less, yeah. less sensitive areas. I like to keep a, my information, I mean, I, I, 
you know, I think there's a balance there depending on what you want to do and how much you want to reveal of yourself. I, I'm always surprised at how much journalists put out onto social media and also the kinds of things they say that I think are... Um, I've said this before at an NUJ freelance forum that I think are, you know, are a bit below perhaps the standard we should set for ourselves because they can be very personal comments about individuals a lot of the time. And I don't think, you know, those kind of things I think can be, you know, are, you're, we forget that our reputation can be built out of all of these different things in it, um, that things that we're revealing arbitrarily with a throwaway comment here or there. So those, I, I even watch those kind of things and I try not to ever make attacks on individuals regardless of what I might think. And I mean, unless it's somebody who I know is perfectly robust for that kind of debate, like um, Michael McDowell. Um, and I had a quite bizarre experience of giving a paper at the, um, to the Law Society on a lot of this area um, <laughs> with McDowell. I only went up, it was only when I looked at the thing on the day before I realized McDowell was the chair. So I was standing there basically saying the same thing about how he shamefully snuck in this amendment, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but that's the kind of person that I think that, you know, you can have robust debate. And, and personally, I actually quite like him. I just can't stand his policies he brought in. Um, he's kind of like the, you know, smell of sulfur, but you like them, you know? Um, but I think a lot of the stuff that, you have to keep in mind that the place that the NSA and, and GCHQ, you know, the, the, uh, there were a lot of the NSA programs like PRISM were tapping data out of social media company and other internet company um, databases, and that GCHQ can surveil all the stuff that's passing over the cables, which means all your social media stuff. So I just be careful with social media. I wouldn't be using Facebook email to <coughs> talk to sources or messages back and forth or Twitter. You know, it's don't friend uh, your your confidential source on LinkedIn. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, and. Um, so yeah, I mean, I would always be careful of what I put out there, uh, and I would also be careful of how I use those formats for communications. Is that is that what you're uh, asking, or do you want to get at something suppose, else there? Uh, really, more pointedly, what other capabilities are out there aside from the GCHQ NSA? Are there are there private companies selling similar, perhaps not as extensive uh, services? As there's private companies definitely selling database information, but you know we we have we have a fair amount of protection because of the data protection laws here compared to the U.S. In the U.S., there's massive databases compiled by private companies that. Um, once you start aggregating data from across a number of different places, it's actually fairly easy to, to identify individuals. It doesn't take a huge amount of work, especially for a security agency. And we know that the security agencies are clients of some of these really big database vendors who have lists um, like it, it, the vendors had a list of gay high school students, for example, because a, 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 a um, scholarship, a website that ostensibly you could go to to register and then find out information about getting scholarships and other funding for um, colleges in the U.S. actually asked you you know, your sexual orientation. I mean, this is for high school students. So that, and people didn't realize that the, the, the website was actually set up by one of these database companies. I mean, the stuff is just grotesque when you start digging down into it. So you had minors saying that they were gay and then this going into a database list that could then be sold. And, you know, or, I mean, there, it was, some of this information is just so revealing. You know, they had a long list of men who've bought Viagra 
for example, you know, I mean, these some of these things that could be used in really, you know, you could see them being used as blackmail for, you know, if you're a prominent politician, for example, or business person, and how embarrassing this might be, and the board might not be too happy that this stuff comes up about your CEO, for example, so... Um, comes up, sorry, no pun intended. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I'd, 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 there's definitely, you don't know where the information goes and, and there's so little control on what happens with our information once it goes into the US that um, that our stuff, our data can end up over there and then be sold off somewhere. You know, it's, it's hard to control it once it's out there. And do you want to finish uh, there? Yeah, we're 15 minutes over, so. Yeah, no, I know, it's, it's, it's there's always questions. <laughs> so, um, well, anyway, thanks for that, and I'm always happy to answer questions if you want to, you know, tweet me or contact me separately, but or meet in person. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With our phones and Faraday bags, so. Um, okay. But thank you. Carol, thank you very much.